Thank you very much. Well, to give you a chance to stretch a little bit, if you would please stand and turn to John chapter 6. This morning we want to look at John 6. I wanted to do this because of Easter. Last Sunday we talked about the fact that Jesus has risen from the dead. And one of the things that we saw in John chapter 20 last week is that in light of the resurrection, he has called us, all of those who trust him, to be um, those who proclaim the gospel, the good news that uh, Jesus has risen from the dead, and that has uh, wonderful implications for all of us. And what I'd like to talk about this morning is, especially what it says in John 6:37, where it highlights the giving father and the welcoming son. And uh, basically, I want to encourage us, practically speaking, in light of what this verse says, to be confident communicators of the gospel. In light of the fact that we serve a risen Savior, we want to confidently proclaim the good news to other people. And this verse, I think, helps us to do that in a way that honors God and honors what Christ has done. So let me read for us, beginning in verse 35. The context of John 6 is actually Jesus feeding the 5,000. And those who were fed um, tracked him down across the Sea of Galilee, hoping to get another free meal. And so Jesus encourages them not to simply pursue Uh, physical food, like what we see pictured there, but to pursue spiritual food. And he's going to talk about the fact that he is the spiritual food that we all need. And that's what we see, what he begins to talk about in verse 35 when he says, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you, that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone... Who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. This is the word of God. You may be seated. So the verse that I want us to focus on is verse 37, which says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Now, if you'd like to do... Uh, some follow-up reading on this verse. So there are two sermons by Charles Spurgeon that are really good. One's entitled, High Doctrine and Broad Doctrine. High and Broad. The other one is called, All Comers to Christ Welcome. And uh, he talks about the fact that if you look at uh, the first part of this verse, verse 37 and the second part of this verse, Um, The first part he would call high doctrine. The last part he would call broad doctrine. And he would say that uh, depending on your uh, theological flavor, uh, you might like the first part of the verse more, or you might like the last part of the verse more. And there's, in many people's minds, 
uh, a difficulty in trying to reconcile the first part of the verse and the second part of the verse. And when people come up to him and say, could you reconcile the first part of this verse with the second part of this verse for me? And he says, you know what? Something that I never do is reconcile friends. You don't need to reconcile friends, which he would say there's no conflict, there's no problem there, certainly not in the mind of God, and therefore shouldn't be in our minds, though we might wrestle at different times. He would say the first part of the verse, which says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, is a jewel. He says the last part of the verse, the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out, is another jewel. And he says, make sure you... uh, wrap those jewels, both of them, around your neck. For they are both precious, precious truths. The first part of it is a wonderful truth, and the second part is a wonderful promise. And both of them are good news, because the first part of it emphasizes the fact that in this fallen world, people are unwilling to come to God for mercy. But God is not willing that his son's death be fruitless. And so he will see that people come to him for mercy. The second part of the verse uh, highlights the good news is that anyone and everyone who does come to Jesus for mercy will be received. Everyone. And so it's a verse that is good news from both perspectives. If we're talking about God's work, it's good news. If we're talking about man coming to Christ, it is good news. As I said, the context of this is the feeding of the 5,000. There's also the story right after the feeding of the 5,000, which is the story of Jesus walking on the water. And I think both of those stories uh, feed into uh, this whole idea of the Father gives to the Son. He gives people to the Son. And it's contrary to their natural inclination. Sort of like Jesus walking on the water. And all those who come to Jesus will not be rejected, but will be satisfied. Just like Jesus feeding the 5,000. So what I'd like to do is just have us chew on, so to speak, John 6:37, While recognizing there's a mystery involved in this. Um, There's a parable in Mark chapter 4 where Jesus says, The kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. And he goes to bed at night and gets up by day. And the seed sprouts and grows. How he himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself. First the blade, then the head, then then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. In order to plant something and see it grow, you don't have to understand how it works. And in fact, the reality is God is the one who causes the growth. Isn't that what Paul said? We plant, we cultivate, but God causes the growth. And that parable says uh, there's a mystery in the growth of a seed. You put it in the ground and it begins to grow. How? The farmer does not know. But he does what he knows he needs to do whether in planting or in harvesting, but it's God who's at work in a mysterious way to bring about that fruit. In our day and time, many times the way we talk about the growth of the church and church growth is more like a business model where we're marketing the church. 
and we're depending on things like human psychology and sociology and human creativity. When the Bible pictures church growth much more in terms of planting seeds like a farmer and depending on God to do what only God can do. And that's what this verse encourages us to realize that as God has called us to be witnesses for Jesus, he's called us to be witnesses for Jesus in light of the fact that God has to grant life. God has to grant growth. And yet we do have good news to proclaim that Jesus is an able and willing Savior for anyone and everyone who will come to him for life. And so we're to be joyful communicators, joyful believing that our witness will not be in vain, that some will respond. You notice uh, in verse 36, right before verse 37, it says, Jesus says, but I, I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Relatively speaking, very few people trusted in Christ in a saving way during his time on earth. And you could say that's kind of discouraging Uh, Maybe Jesus failed. Maybe Jesus kind of wondered if, you know, things weren't going to play out very well, that his ministry was going to be a failure. And Jesus says, no, I'm very confident that all that the Father gives me will come to me, and I will not lose a single one of them, and I will raise them up at the last day. So there's this context of unbelief. If you read the whole chapter, which I wish we had time to, if you read the whole chapter, it's very much filled with the reality of people seeing Jesus, God in the flesh, uh, multiplying loaves and fishes, and doing all kinds of miracles, and still rejecting him over and over and over again, saying, that's not enough, show us something else. That's not enough, do something else. And you might walk away thinking, well, maybe... This isn't going to play out so well for Jesus. And he says, no, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And so we are to be encouraged that by God's gracious work, by his spirit, through his word, God is going to save people who don't even want to be saved. And yet everyone who wants to be saved can be saved. Because only, the only ones who want to be saved are those who've been given to the Son. That's the connection between uh, the first part and the second part. If you read the sermons by Spurgeon, he emphasizes the fact that the way we know that someone's been given to the Son is that they come to the Son. And we need to think about what that means. And so uh, the first thing is to ask the question, Uh, What is the coming to Christ all about? John 6, 37 says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. All who will come, and he who comes. So there's a sense in which the first part speaks more as a unit of those who will come, and then the second part talks about individually those who come to Christ. And The first part of those who will come is connected to the giving of the Father. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Uh, The second part, the one who comes to me, is actually in the present tense, meaning the one who continually comes to me. It's it's, uh, a lifestyle. It's not just someone who 
raises his hand in a church service or fills out a card or gets baptized at some time. But it's someone who comes to Jesus and that is what their life is all about. It's about going to Jesus and trusting Jesus with one's life. And it implies to come to Jesus means I I leave something behind. I leave things behind in order to come to him and I come to him for something. I don't just believe that he exists, but I come to him for what he offers. In this context in John 6, the people are coming to Jesus for something, but it's for physical food. They want Jesus to do the same thing that happened in the Old Testament when God gave them manna from heaven on a daily basis. They like the idea of not having to work and and plant and cultivate and just wake up every morning and go gather their food. They'd probably even like it better if God just put it in their refrigerator, even better, or brought it, brought it to them in bed. Maybe that'd be even better. But they wanted the physical food, but Jesus says, you know, you're coming to me for the wrong thing. You need to come to me for what really matters. You need to come to me for the satisfaction of your souls and for a right relationship with God. And so the question is, what does it mean to come to Christ? If you look at verse 35, it says, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. So if you put those two together, he who comes to me and he who believes in me are the same thing. So what does it mean to come to him? It's not a, it's not a spatial thing. It's not a physical thing. It's a heart thing where I entrust myself to him. I believe in him in light of who he is and in light of what he's done. It's coming to him for what we need. It's emphasized later on in the chapter when he starts talking about the fact that in order to be saved, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood, which would have been a really unsettling thing for the Jewish people. In the Old Testament, it says don't have anything to do with blood. Don't be drinking it. Don't be eating it. Jesus was speaking figuratively about his death. That you have to receive. Just like you look for physical food to nourish you and sustain you physically, you need to look to me and what I've done to sustain you and give you life spiritually. So that it says in verse 57, As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. When you think about the idea of coming to Jesus in light of the feeding of the 5,000, when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, what is he saying? He's saying to come to me means you come to me for satisfaction. It says that Jesus gave them all the bread and all the fish that they could eat. They were completely satisfied physically. He says, when you come to me, you trust me for complete satisfaction. That you're going to trust me to be everything that you need, which is interesting in light of the last part of the chapter. And I would encourage you to read the whole chapter after the service and just think about how it all fits together. But at the the very end, when Jesus starts talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, some of the disciples, people who had been walking around with Jesus and listening to him and following him in some sense, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can hear it? And it says they left. They walked away from Jesus at that point. 
And Jesus turns to the disciples, the 12, that Eric read about Jesus selecting the 12 earlier. He turns to them and he says, are you going to leave too? And in the Greek, the way he asks that question, the expectation is no. And they say, or Peter says, speaking for the group of them in verse 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of life, of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So what does Peter say? When Jesus says, are you going to leave too? Are you going to walk away? Are you done? You're going to say, all done. I'm all done with this Jesus. He's weird. He's strange. He's calling me to trust him in ways that I don't think I should ever trust somebody that I can see and touch and hear. And Peter says, we believe in you. There's no place else to go. You're the only one who has the words of eternal life. That's true faith. That even when I might be tempted to walk away from Jesus, I say, there's no place to go. Jesus is the only one who can satisfy me. If Jesus doesn't do it, I will not be satisfied. If Jesus doesn't come through for me, then I am undone. But I believe Jesus will come through for me. I believe that will never happen. And so I'm confident in him. That's what Jesus means when he says coming to him is trusting him for what he offers, which is the forgiveness of sins, trusting him for eternal life, that we will find the satisfaction that our heart longs for. The prodigal son, you may remember the story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son goes and wastes his money and wastes his life and ends up in a pigsty. And then it says in the midst of the story, but when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father. More than enough bread. My father has more than enough bread. He can satisfy me. I will get up and go. That's the idea. Jesus has more than enough bread to satisfy my soul. I will go to him. I will trust him for what I need and I desire. It's interesting, someone asked Spurgeon about um, the whole idea of trusting Christ and he said, I just find it difficult. The idea that you say, Mr. Spurgeon, that I'm just to fall headlong upon Christ. That seems hard to do. And Spurgeon answered this way. He said, oh dear, then I do not know how to talk. For I meant not a thing you could do, but the cessation of all your efforts, just falling, or if you will see it better, just tumbling down because you cannot stand upright, and that is it. So what does it mean to trust Christ? It means to stop trusting in yourself, stop trusting in your own righteousness, stop trusting in your own efforts, and just cast yourself upon who he is and what he did. You stop, you cease your efforts to earn your righteousness and you cast yourself completely upon Christ. He uses another illustration where he says, imagine a tree that's full of fruit. If you come to that tree with a loaded basket full of fruit already, you can't receive anything from that tree. What Jesus wants is you to come to him. He's the 
loaded tree with an empty basket. You have nothing to offer Jesus. You don't have any wonderful feelings for him. You don't have any wonderful works for him. You just have an empty basket. And he said, that's the kind of person that I will fill with the tree of life, the fruit that will satisfy forever and ever. And so the coming of repentant faith, a repentant faith means a faith that turns away from all that is sinful and self-righteous and comes to Jesus to be delivered from our sin and to satisfy us in God. The second part that I want to emphasize of this verse is the idea of what it talks about with regard to the giving of the Father. It says at the very first part of the verse in John 6, all that the Father gives me will come to me. What is all that? All that refers to people. In the context, he's talking about all the people that the Father gives to Jesus will come to him. In fact, the actual way it's uh, in, written in the Greek is it's all that the Father is giving to me. Is giving to me. Which means that it's something that is happening. It was happening in the days of Jesus and it's happening after the days of Jesus. It's happening today. The Father is giving people to Jesus. What does that mean? In the context, it means all those who are coming to Jesus are those who the Father is giving to Jesus. It's the work of the Father that is being seen in this. The giving and the coming to Jesus are intimately related. And so what what is this involved? If you look at verse 29, Jesus is talking to the people who are chasing him around for another meal. And uh, he answers a question and he says in verse 29, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So if you ask the question, what is God up to in the world? He's working in the hearts of sinners so that they will believe in Jesus. It's the work of God that you believe. And that work is actually contrary to the natural inclination of sinners. And that's why I tied it to the idea of walking on water. Jesus did something that was contrary to what would naturally happen. You would naturally sink if you tried to stand on water. But God is able to work contrary to what might naturally happen. In verse 36, as I mentioned earlier, Jesus says, I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. Earlier in John 5, verse 40, Jesus says, And you are unwilling to come to me, so that you may have life. You are unwilling to come to me. One of the basic things the Bible teaches about our fallenness, the way we are in our fallen state, is that we are idol worshipers. We worship other things besides God. We deserve a just punishment for that because it keeps us from loving God and loving people as we should. And We cannot save ourselves, which means I cannot be righteous enough to be accepted by God, and I cannot wipe away my own sin and the guilt of it. But I am also unwilling to come to God for mercy. That's what Jesus is saying. You're unwilling to come to me that you might have life. I'm offering you life. I'm offering you forgiveness and eternal life, and you are unwilling to do that. 
In fact, even amongst his own 12, at the end of the chapter, it says, Jesus knew that there was one among them that would not believe, speaking of Judas. He spent three years walking with Jesus as closely as anyone could at that time, and he still did not come to Jesus for what he offered, which is the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And so the reality is that it it takes the work of God in our hearts. It's necessary for God to work in our hearts in a way that overcomes our natural unwillingness to come to Christ. And that's what's emphasized in this chapter. If you read the whole chapter, Jesus highlights that in different ways. If you look in verse 44, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Then he goes on and says in verse 45, And they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. You don't come to Jesus until you've heard the Father and learned from the Father, until God teaches you, teaches your heart, overcomes your unwillingness to come to Jesus for life and forgiveness. Until that happens, you don't come. You won't come. We won't come. The only reason any of us here have ever come to Jesus in a saving way, not just wanting a handout, not just wanting our temporal lives to be better, but actually wanting to be delivered from sin and to enjoy God. The only reason any of us have come to Jesus for that is because of God's work in our hearts. He goes on and he says later on in the chapter, um, after in verse 60, you know, you've got some of the disciples saying, this is a difficult statement, who can listen to it? In verse 63, he says, it is the spirit who gives life. God works through his word, the proclamation of the gospel to give life to people who refuse to come to God for life. And then he says that in verse 65, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. So over and over again in this chapter, Jesus highlights the unwillingness of sinners naturally in their fallen state to come to him for life. And yet over and over he emphasizes that God will not allow the sacrifice that at that point he was going to make to not bear any fruit. He was going to make sure that there would be people who would believe. Indeed, those people were chosen before the foundation of the world. And so ultimately, the Lord Jesus is guaranteeing the salvation of those the Father gives the Son. He says, as we read in verse 39, This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing. There's a verse in Acts 13, which says, 1348, As many as had been appointed to eternal life, believed. The appointment precedes the believing. Um, Now, some might ask the question, well, should I be concerned that I, I haven't been given to the Father? And that's a fear that most, a lot of people will have. As Spurgeon said, some might, someone uh, might come up to him and say, I sometimes wish that I knew whether I was one of God's elect. One of, one of those that God the, God the Father has given to the Son. And he answered it this way. He told a story. He said, um, there, was a, there was a man who owed another man two pounds. And he knew that this man who 
uh, was owed the money, believed in the sovereignty of God. And so he asked him, uh, do you believe that I've been predestined to give you back your two pounds? So he says, you know, you, you think that's something that uh, God has ordained to take place? And the man who was owed the two pounds said, give me the two pounds and then I'll let you know. <laughs> and Spurgeon used that to say, how do you know you've been given by the Father to the Son? You come to Jesus for life. That's how you know. That's why those two things are in the same verse. They're connected together. As I said before, um, God will make sure there are many people at the wedding feast of the Son. Uh, there's a story in Matthew 22 where it talks about a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. The ones who were invited made up excuses and would not come. And it says that he sent his slaves out into the streets and gathered, uh, and they gathered together all they found, both evil and good, and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. Even when people say, I'm unwilling to come, I'm unwilling to come, I'm unwilling to come, and God says, I'll make sure that people come. I'll make sure that my son is honored and glorified and that he sees the satisfaction of his life and death and resurrection. The last part that I want to emphasize with regard to this text is the welcome of the son. We've seen the coming of repentant faith, the giving of the father, and now the welcome of the son. It says at the end of John 6:37, all that the father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Now, what does it mean to be cast out? Well, the word means to throw out, to cast out, uh, like you would something that you don't like, something that's not useful, something that is unacceptable, uh, basically trash. It's like throwing out the trash. And Jesus says, those who come to me, each individual person, whoever it might be, who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. We might, as I said, be, be afraid of being cast out because maybe we haven't been given to the Father. And as I just said, we need not fear that if we've come to Jesus uh, in light of who he is and what he offers. We might be afraid that maybe we could do something. There are those who believe you can lose your salvation. You can sin after the fact and and Jesus will cast you out because you've uh, sinned a mortal sin of some kind. And Jesus says, those who come to me, I will certainly, indeed, I will never, ever cast out. It is very, very strongly spoken there. I will not ever cast out. And so it's those who come to Jesus for what he offers. What does he offer? It says at the very beginning of Matthew that he would be named Jesus for he will save his people from what? From their sins. So if you want to be saved from sin, if you want to be saved from the guilt and condemnation of sin, want to be saved from hell, and if you also want to be saved from the power of sin over your life, that you don't want to continue disobeying God. You don't want to continue failing to love other people like God calls you to love them. And one day you want to be totally rid of all sin and you want to be made like Jesus. And Jesus says, I am an able and willing Savior. I can do that for you. 
I can deliver you from the guilt of sin, from the power of sin, and one day from the presence of sin. I can do that for you. Trust me. Trust me to do that for you. And so why won't they be cast out? Because Jesus died for all those who would trust him to do that for them. And all those who trust him are those that the Father has given to him. And he's not going to reject someone the Father has given to him. He's not going to reject the gift of the Father that's been given to him. He will receive every gift from the Father. And so those he will not cast out are all those who are entrusting themselves to him. If you look at verse 40, on the one hand, he would say in verse 39, this is the will of the Father, that all those that the Father gives him, he will raise up. But then he talks about the last part of the verse when he says, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. So basically, when you think about it in the context of the feeding of the 5,000, God in the Old Testament fed the, five, fed the uh, Israelites the manna from heaven, and whether or not they trusted him or not in any kind of saving way, they received physical life through that bread. It was offered to them, and they benefited from it. The offer of bread, when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, he is highlighting the fact that he is offering himself to anyone and everyone who will receive it. He is offering himself to them just like God gave them the manna in the wilderness. So he says in verse 48, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. And as I mentioned, ultimately, Jesus is pointing forward to his his death. When he talks about at the end of the chapter, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. So what are we to come to Jesus for? We're to trust that he is who who he says he is. He's God in the flesh. He's fully man and fully God. And we're to trust that he came to earth in order to provide a way of salvation, to be delivered from our sin and to be ushered into the presence of God. If we come to him for the things he offers, he says, I will not reject you. I will not deny you. So don't be afraid about the idea that, well, maybe I'm not one of the elect, or I'm not one that the Father has given to the Son. Spurgeon over and over in his sermon says, you know what? Uh, That's not something for you to figure out. The question for you is not, am I elect or am I given uh, by the Father to the Son? The question is, will you come to Christ? Will you come to Jesus? Will you trust him for everything he promises to be for you? That is the question. You answer that question and then you'll answer the other question. That's how we find out and find assurance. The first part of the the verse highlights the depravity of man, that we will not come to God on our own for mercy. The second part of the verse highlights the basis for our assurance, that if we come to Christ, we can know that it was because of God's mercy. Those who God has mercy on are willing to come to God for mercy in Jesus. That's the glorious good news of this verse. And so, 
Um, it doesn't matter how black your sin is. One of the things Spurgeon talks about is we might think, well, my sin is too bad. You don't know me. You don't know what I've done. He says it doesn't matter. That is an unqualified promise. That is an unlimited promise. You come to Jesus to be delivered from sin. It doesn't matter what your sin is. You will be delivered. That is a promise. And you can stake your life on it. I'm staking my life on it. We're staking our lives on it. I would encourage anyone who has not done that yet to stake their lives on that. No matter what your sin is. The last two things are just some practical encouragement uh, as we think about how do we how do we try to be more confident communicators with people around us who don't know Christ. Uh, there's no doubt that some of us are more inclined to speak and witness than others of us are. Some of us are are more outgoing. Some of us are more timid. Um, and yet, all of us are called to to tell the good news and to share the good news and, and to communicate that with confidence. And this verse encourages us to do that. And the first thing that I would say is that we are to pray. The first response to the reality that the Father is giving people this very day to the Son means that I need to be praying that God would give people to the Son, that the Father would give people to the Son. We're to pray very, very specifically. It says in 1 Timothy 2, First of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. Paul could say in Romans 10, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. If you read Romans 9, 10, and 11, those are some of the heaviest sovereignty of God, Father giving to the Son chapters you can read. And in the midst of that, Paul says, it's my heart's desire for those who aren't saved, and particularly he's talking about the Jewish people, it's my heart's desire and my prayer. I turn my desire into prayer, and I pray that God would save. And what I'd like to encourage you to do practically, and encourage myself to do too, is to think about those in your family, in your workplace, in your world that you know that aren't saved and make a list of those people and pray on a daily basis for them. It doesn't have to be long prayers. You just pray, God have mercy on so-and-so. God, work in their hearts and make them willing to come to Christ. And I would also like to suggest that if you want to, to give the elders a list of those people and we will pray with you. And if others want to pray with us for those people, we'll share those. But we're not going to share it publicly. It'll only be by request. And so if you'd like to be a part either of sharing with the elders, those we can be praying with you about, and if you'd like to be a part of those who are praying for those who need Christ, then let's do that. Let's pray 
uh, for God's work of giving uh, people to his son. Let's pray that he would do that, which is consistent with what we see in John 6, 37. The second thing is go fishing. And what I, I'm just mentioning a couple things. I want to talk more about this in the future. I want to talk about a lot of different things practically in terms of how we need to be living in light of all that Christ has done for us. But I just want to mention two things here this morning with regard to communication. The second thing is to go fishing in the sense that Jesus told his followers, follow, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. What does a fisherman do in some way, shape, or other? Um, well, it's usually associated with baits. can be associated with nets, too. But it can be associated with bait. You throw out a bait, and you see if there's a response. And the Bible does talk about praying for open doors for the gospel. And so what I'd like for us to think about doing is not only making a list of uh, people that we know, that aren't Christians, that we're going to be praying for, but make a list of uh, starter questions that you can just ask people and see if they bite, see if they have any desire to talk to you about um, spiritual things. Uh, There's a well-known gospel presentation, uh, Evangelism Explosion, where they start off with two questions. One is, if if you were to die tonight, do you, do you believe you would go to heaven? If so, why or why not? Second question was, if you were to die tonight and God were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? What do you think God would say or what would you say? And what would God say to that? And so there are questions like that. There are questions like, um, you know, nobody's perfect. We all have guilt. What do you do with your guilt? Or we all want to be happy. We all long to be happy. What do you think will make you happy? Or uh, we're all living for something. We all want our life to look like something. What do you want your life to look like? Like, And who do you think can make that happen? There are all kinds of just very practical, almost normal questions. They're not all normal, but some of them can, can be pretty normal, like um, happiness about or questions about happiness or goals or whatever, but um, we can pray that God would make us bold questioners where we ask important questions that may just open the door for us to talk about what we have done with our guilt, where we're looking for life and happiness, what we want our lives to look like, and then to explain why, to explain the good news of Jesus in that context. Let me just wrap up with um, just a reminder of the fact that when we talk about what we've talked about, God's sovereignty over the salvation of men, the perennial problem, which is the ongoing problem among Christians, is that those who tend to most exalt the doctrine of God's sovereignty over the salvation of men also often tend to struggle with doing the things that God calls us to do, like witnessing or like praying, because it's very easy to fall off the horse one way or the other. And we often fall off the horse on the side that says, should I really even pray that much for sinners? I mean, if God's going to save them, he's going to save them, right? Should I really be that concerned about starting conversations that might lead to the gospel? 
God's going to save them, he's going to save them, right? Um, it's interesting, in Acts chapter 18, Paul is ministering, and um, the Lord comes to Paul in a vision. And he says this to Paul. He says, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent. So Paul must have been, about, must have been afraid of something. And it must have been challenging him to not speak. That's why God comes to him and says, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent. And he says, For I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. What does that mean? I have many people in this city. I believe it means I have people in this city that I am going to give to my son. So keep on speaking. So as you preach the gospel, I will give to my son. I will work in their hearts. So don't stop speaking. Don't stop praying because I'm at work to give people to my son, to the glory of my son, to the glory of my grace. So don't stop praying. Don't stop speaking. The sovereignty of God should inspire confidence and not instill paralysis. As an illustration of that, William Carey, who's considered the father of modern missions, was encouraging people to um, go to the heathens and preach the gospel. And somebody um, stood up one time and challenged him and said, Young man, sit down. You are an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. Now, there's another version of that story where the man says, Young man, sit down. When God is pleased to convert the heathen world, he will do it without your help or mine. Now, the reality is that God could do it without us. But it's very, very clear that Paul would have said, "Uh, That's not right. How will they believe if they do not hear? And how will they hear without a preacher? That's what Paul said. I think he knows what God and Jesus uh, think more so than that man did. And and William Carey um, stuck with what Jesus said and what God says and what Paul said. And he went and preached the gospel. And God gave people to his son. And so the doctrine of God's sovereignty should not keep us from praying, keep us from witnessing, keep us from coming to Christ. It should not make us indifferent to what happens in the saving of souls. It should not make us lax in our pursuit of obedience to what God commands. In fact, it should give us confidence in praying that he's able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, even in that person we can't imagine ever coming to Jesus. God is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. It will give us confidence in witnessing because it means that Yes, there may be many who don't even want to hear, don't even want to start a conversation, but who knows? There may be people and there will be people that God is at work to save. There will be some. Jesus will see the fruit of his cross and he will be satisfied. The Father will see to it. It should give us confidence in coming to Christ. Why? Because if I want to be delivered from my sin. I want to be forgiven. I want to be reconciled to God. And I believe that Jesus can do that for me. Then I can know 
that the Father has given me to the Son. And I can give him all the glory for my coming. I give him all the glory. It gives me confidence in my coming to say, I would not want to come to Jesus for those things unless God in his mercy had made me willing. It causes us to be passionate about what happens in the saving of souls. If God is at work, then we need to be at work. It makes us hopeful and diligent in our obedience to what God commands. So for those here who haven't yet trusted in Christ, I invite you to come to Christ for what he offers. He will not reject you. If you come to him for forgiveness, he is ready to forgive. If you come to him for eternal life, he is ready to give you that which will satisfy your soul. The Bible says ask him. The Bible says that those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. He who believes will not be disappointed. He will not disappoint a single person who comes to him for what he offers. For us as believers, I encourage us all to thank God that God has given us to his son, that that is the truth. The only reason we've come to Christ and trusted in Christ is because of God's sovereign and gracious work. And we need to thank him every day that he did that. And at the same time, we need to share the good news that Jesus is an able and willing Savior who has said, he who comes to me, I will never, ever cast out. That is good news. We can be confident that God is at work to save people and we can be confident that we have good news for people. If we believe in the sovereignty of God in such a way that we don't have good news for people, we don't believe in the sovereignty of God as we should, It should free us to speak. It should free us to rejoice in a Savior for sinners and to share that. And we should pray that he would do that and we should engage unbelievers with questions that matter that will lead to important conversations. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much for the encouragement of your word. Help us to be confident communicators confident because you are at work saving people who don't want to be saved. Having mercy on those who will not come to you for mercy. Help us to be confident communicators in that we know that, Lord Jesus, you are an able and willing Savior for sinners and that you offer forgiveness and offer eternal life and that we do have good news to share with every person in our family, workplace, world that does not know you, that is not trusting you. Grant us grace to pray more diligently. Grant us grace to work at asking good questions and and seeking open doors for the gospel. And we pray, Lord, that you would use us as you give people to your Son. And that the Lord Jesus would see the fruit of his labor and be satisfied. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.